Good morning. What a great day it is to be in the Lord's house and to come to His Word. Excited to be up here preaching this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. As I mentioned a moment ago, we've been, we read our scripture from Titus chapter 2. And uh, just a, a joy to be in God's Word this morning with you as we uh, think about Titus chapter 2. I want us to think about the subject of our sermon as God's grace. You may notice a theme this morning of God's grace, and uh, it's an important theme. We want to look today at God's grace, its accomplishment, and calling. And I think we're going to find uh, that Paul has something to say about both the calling of grace and what it accomplished. And so I want us to look at that today. We're not going to look at the entire letter that, that uh, Paul wrote to Titus uh, this morning. We're not doing a series on it, although we will one day do a series on Titus. But I want us to think about the context of the letter as being from Paul, the uh, learned apostle, if you will, uh, to one of his um, pupils or uh, one who's serving under him, one who got their start in the ministry under Paul. Paul is writing this letter to uh, Titus, who is leading the church at Crete, and there are churches having some issues. There are some complications and some difficulties in their church, and Paul is writing, advising uh, Titus on how to deal with them. If you know this letter, you know there's a lot said about appointing elders and, and what each group within the church needs to be doing to make the church body function better. So we see in this letter a lot of instruction. But we come to the second chapter, and it's a section I'm sure most of you know well, but it has within it this short few verses that we're going to look at today that speak of the grace of God. It's kind of the gospel in a nutshell, if you will, a very condensed uh, version of the gospel, and it's beautiful. And so we're going to look at it today. It's not the only one in the scriptures, but it's one that we want to look at and uh, try to understand today. In these short few verses covering uh, 11 through 15 of chapter 2, Paul discusses the awesome grace of God, the accomplishment of that grace and what it calls believers to do. And so we want to look at it. You know, it's important because the grace of God is as misunderstood today as it was in Paul's day. Or you could say it was as misunderstood in Paul's day as it is in our own day. Uh, it is misunderstood. There are many people who dislike grace. You can see that in, uh, in many ways, many avenues of the dislike of grace. Some people reject grace because they don't want to think that their work is not good enough. There are some, like in the parable of the day laborers, who reject grace because they think they've earned more than others have, and so they don't want to be on the same level by grace. There are some that reject grace uh, because they think that uh, God's grace is not enough to overcome the sin in their lives. In one sense, these people have a high view of the holiness of God, and they have a, a correct view of the weight of their sin, but they miss the love of God. I would think of... Uh, Luther, Martin Luther, as the Augustinian monk who struggled with this idea of how God could redeem him or how God could, could call him just, if you will, though he was a sinner. He couldn't understand it. He'd read Romans chapter 1. He would see the righteousness of God is revealed. And, and Paul would say, I know, or, uh, Luther would say, I know Paul means something positive here, but to me it's only negative. How can the righteousness of God be good when his righteousness reveals my sinfulness? And shows that I'm worthy of judgment. But it's in the gospel that Luther came to understand the amazing grace of God. And so all those that are in that position of uh, rejecting grace because they think God uh, couldn't overlook their sin or could not. 
The gospel explains to them how he can, and they've missed his love, his amazing love. You know, in fact, as I like to quote this often, but as Paul says in Romans, the gospel is the explanation for how God can remain holy and redeem fallen people. So it's important to recognize that. On the other hand, in our own culture today, as there was in Paul's day, there's a radical opposing view to this, which is a people who love the grace of God. And what I mean by this is they uh, falsely love the grace of God. They love the idea of the grace of God because in their minds, it's a license to sin. Paul deals with these people, doesn't he, in Romans. Maybe you've met some of these people that that say, listen, man, if God uh, doesn't care about my works, if we're redeemed by his grace outside of works, then it just doesn't matter what we do. We can live however we want. And yet Paul says in Romans this very thing, doesn't he? That you cannot use God's grace as an excuse for sin. And so, again, I would say we need to think about this and, and realize that all these people are erring when it comes to grace. So we need to know what grace actually says. We don't want to end up as the antinomians, and we don't want to end up as those who are legalists. We want to find the right biblical response. How are we to understand the grace of God? And so we come to a question. In the light of grace, that our works contribute nothing to our justification, is there any point in worrying about works at all? Now that's a serious question that we need to ask. And so Paul will tell us today the answer to that question, not only that grace has delivered us, but that grace has put a call upon us and has become our teacher as we live out our lives as the people of Christ. Let me read the text one more time. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord of our God, excuse me, and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, speak these things, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Amen. What a a beautiful passage of the word of God. As we look at it this morning, I want us to note three things. First of all, a salvation which grace has delivered us to. In other words, the salvation to which grace has delivered us. Grace has delivered us to a salvation in Christ Jesus. We need to think about it. Second of all, a calling to which grace has called us. A calling to which grace has called us. And lastly, a commitment to which grace has inspired us. As we begin this morning looking at a salvation to which grace has called us, we want to see that the immediate context of false preaching is familiar but it's still worth thinking about here. Paul says that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, several things in that first statement are worthy of looking at. First of all, Paul's argument is that the grace of God into salvation has appeared how? In the person and work of Jesus Christ and in no one else. Now, that's not to say that God's grace had not been visible in any sense before Christ, but all of the salvific Uh, realities of the Old Testament pointed forward, if you will, to Christ. Christ is their fulfillment. He is the greatest picture of the grace of God, the saving mercy of God. All of it points to Christ, and we could go through dozens of examples, couldn't we? The Passover lamb finds its fullness in Christ. The Passover meal finds its fullness in Christ. Over and over again, we see these truths. The love, mercy, 
and grace of God found throughout the Bible is accomplished in what Christ comes to do in taking our sin upon himself and going to the cross to give his life as the perfect atonement for sin. He is the perfect atonement. And the letter of Hebrews uh, really does well to exposit that idea. But again, it's important for us to think about this. Christ took our sin upon himself. He didn't have sin of his own. All the sin that Christ had upon the cross, if you will, was imputed to him. It wasn't his sin. He was spotless, perfect, sinless, perfectly righteous. The word that Paul uses here to speak about the appearance of this grace is the Greek word from which we derive epiphany. Now that idea is important, isn't it? It gives the idea of something suddenly being understood. It isn't that it it appears, you didn't have the knowledge before, but it brings clarity to the knowledge. An epiphany is something you've known about for a long time, suddenly you understand it. Suddenly it comes together. That's what Christ is for all of the biblical theology. Right, All of those pictures, all of those threads throughout the Bible suddenly snap together in Christ. Suddenly in Christ, there's an epiphany, if you will, of this revelation of God, of Christ, and of salvation, and of his mercy. And so it's in the death and resurrection, and even the life and ministry of Christ, that we can fully understand the depth of love, height of mercy, and fullness of grace of God. And who is the object of that love and grace? Who are the recipients of that love and grace? The rich? The powerful? The well-connected politically? A particular race or nation? Paul says that the grace of God has come to all men, every man, every people group. He's saying that it's come to all persons, if you will, not just Jews, but also Greek. This is Really the equivalent of what Paul says in Galatians, isn't it? In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, man nor woman. This idea, right? There aren't classes, if you will, in that sense, in the kingdom. When it comes to the grace of God, all will come the same way, and that's through Christ Jesus alone to the glory of God the Father. So what did this grace accomplish in the person and work of Christ? We'll look at verse 14. It'll tell you. Who, meaning Jesus Christ, gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every, every lawless deed. What did the grace accomplish here? Redemption. Redemption of the people of God. It accomplished our redemption at the cross. The gospel is there in very short form, isn't it? In very elegant form. Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. If you're a liberal scholar who wants to deny the atoning death of Christ, good luck there. Good luck with that passage, which speaks of the atoning death of Christ. Christ died not as an example, although it does serve as an example for how we are to be a sacrificial people, but that isn't its main point. Christ died as an atonement for the sin of others, the sin of them imputed to him. And so Paul is clearly stating that we are redeemed in what was accomplished by grace in the death of Jesus Christ. And Paul's words could not be more important than they are here. Paul uses this interesting word in the Greek for redemption that's actually a term from the slave market, litru, which uh, means to free someone from the bonds of slavery and set them free. Can you imagine the early church, the 
uh, effect that wording would have on a church that even had many slaves in it, that the imagery would have been well noted that you had been slaves and were set free, set free from the bonds of sin and death. Isn't that what it says? From every lawless deed, you've been set free, set free from the chains of sin and death. Christ, in taking our sin upon himself, purchased the freedom of all those who would look upon him in faith. Again, the message of the scriptures is not that this is done by anything that we do, but it's done by what Christ has done alone. Christ paid the price, not you, not me. Christ alone was sufficient to pay the price. He has set us free. By grace you have been saved, not by works. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Well, if you've seen that, we also want to look at the second point this morning, a calling to which grace has called us, a calling to which grace has called us. So if works have nothing to do with saving us, then we're presented with a question. There's no point in doing them, is there? If our works do not add to our justification in the least, what is the sense of doing works? Well, look at what Paul says. Paul says that this grace appears in the person and work of Jesus Christ for a purpose. Look at verse 12. He says that the grace that has appeared teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Do you see that? The grace didn't just appear to set us free. It appears to teach us. But what does it teach us? Well, Paul says it teaches us how to live in the present age. Now, how are we to do that? Well, first of all, it tells us something important, that we are to deny ungodliness, which is simply to say we avoid living in the way of the world. The world lives in an ungodly way. We're not to do that. We're to live in ways that please our God. We're given a little more help by the next phrase, where it tells us to avoid worldly lusts. What are those? Well, those are the lusts and desires that drive the world's passions. Lust for money, lust for power, lust for influence, lust for sex. Those are what drive the world. They are not to drive you. That's what Paul is saying. Don't let those things drive you. Be driven instead by something else. Be driven by desire to bring glory to Jesus Christ. That's what should drive you. So Paul says there are some things that we should not do. Don't live in unrighteousness. Don't be driven by earthly lust, but uh, there are things we should do as well. I'm reminded of a few years ago, uh, me and Brother Cole went to see Steve Lawson in Nashville, and he said, great teaching involves two things. First of all, negative commands and positive commands. Here's what you're not to do. Here's what you are to do. Paula said, don't do these things, right? Don't live unrighteously. Don't be driven by worldly lusts, but there are some things that you should do. You should live soberly. You should live soberly. That is to say, with a sound mind, sensibly, led by the Spirit of God. You should do that. What else should you do? You should live righteously. That means in a right manner or right standing before God. You should live in the right way according to the Word of God. You're to do that. That isn't all he says. He says you're also to live godly. To live godly, which is to say devout, committed in our faith before God and the call which he has placed upon us. This is the picture of a person who understands what God has done for them. This is the very picture 
of a person who understands what God has done for them and desires, as a result, to live wholeheartedly for him. Now, what this isn't is some pie-in-the-sky dream that Paul has of maybe Christians could attain this. Paul doesn't present it that way. Paul presents this as how Christians are supposed to live. Again, this isn't simply the way Titus and other elders are to live. This is written to the church. If you go back and look at the entirety of chapter 2, Paul has just dealt at the end of chapter 1 with false teachers. He says, don't be like them. Chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, in other words, unlike them, as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And then Paul walks through and tells, here's how the older men should live. Here's how the older women should live. Here's how the younger women should live. Here's how the younger men should live. In the church, yeah. But also in their homes, in their workplaces, wherever they may be, they should live lives that bring glory to Christ. Live in proper ways. And then Paul comes down here and says all of that is given for this theological reason, that if you understand the grace which has been given to you, you'll want to live graciously. You'll want to live graciously. You'll live in a way that does these things. You'll deny ungodliness. You'll deny worldly lust. You'll desire to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So all of that's important. It's what we're called to do. As we move to our third point this morning, we want to recognize the commitment to which grace has inspired us. You know, if we want to see, rec- first of all, that grace has delivered us, and it has, if we're in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. It has delivered us to the glory of God. And it also has called us, as we saw, grace is our teacher. Grace has called us to live a certain way, but we're not left without the means to do it. Now, we know the Bible says much about the uh, gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Go back to Romans again. Paul talks about uh, the love of God being poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Holy Spirit is instrumental in our new life in Christ, no doubt about that. The sanctification that we have is through his empowerment. But Paul isn't speaking specifically there or here about the Holy Spirit. He's speaking about the grace in general, the idea of grace and what it does in us. Grace should inspire you. When you think about what God has done for you, Paul says, you should be zealous. Look at verse 14, you'll see it. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify us, right? He purifies us for himself to be his own special people, zealous for good works. You heard it right there. He has purified us for himself, his own special people, that we might be zealous for good works. So being a zealot is part of God's will for us. Now, we need to be careful how we mean that, don't we? But the truth is, in light of what Christ has done for us, how could we not be a zealous people? How could we not have a drive, a passionate desire to see Christ glorified? Again, Paul reminds us in this text of where we stand in salvation history. We stand looking back at Jesus Christ, his first appearance, the incarnation. We think about what he did at Calvary's cross and in the resurrection to deliver us from the bonds of sin and death. But we also are in a place where we're looking forward, aren't we? We're looking forward to his next appearing. This next time he will not be coming as a lowly babe in a manger, disguised to the eyes of the world. No, he will not. 
he'll be coming back very recognizable as the conquering king of glory. That's the point that Paul's making here. Our longed, great longed-for hope, the glorious appearing of our great and glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And as we wait for that blessed day, we are reminded that Christ paid the price that we could be his people. Notice again, his purified people, his special people. Believing this, how can Paul not describe a people who are zealous for Christ? You weren't just purchased by his blood. He purified you to be his special people. How can you not be zealous for him? We should be zealous for good works, to bring honor and glory to Christ. And by the way, that word zealous means exactly what you think it means in the Greek. Deeply enthusiastic, deeply committed, firmly driven to do good works. Paul says that this describes the commitment to which grace has called us to which grace has called us. God's grace has called us, it's equipped us, and it's inspired us. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to close very simply this morning. I want to ask you a question. Is this what you see in the modern American church? Is this what you see today in the church? Do we see a people who are on fire for God's glory, desiring to serve Him, zealous to serve Him with good works? A people who rightly understand their own place in the plan of God, the salvific plan of God? Do we see a people who are defined by our zealous dedication to Christ? If not, then why not? Paul says that's what we should expect. Again, this isn't a description of the elite. It's not a description of what is possible. It is a description that Paul is giving for what all people in Christ's church should look like. My friends, I would just point you to John 15. This is not a new message. Jesus said in John 15 that he is the vine and we are the branches. If we abide in him, we will bring forth fruit. In fact, he says fruit and more fruit and much fruit. If we abide in him, we will grow. We will grow spiritually. We will be sanctified. We'll bring forth the fruit that honors God. And so, my friends, I want us to recognize this morning, we don't have the excuse of saying, well, maybe one day, or maybe that's for other people. This is for you if you're a Christian. I want you to hear it one more time. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, does that describe you? Does that describe me? That's the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be in your house and in your word. I know it's a unique situation we're in right now where I say we're together in your house, but it's only virtually that we are. We're spread out throughout this community. But Father, it's a good reminder that the church is not a building, it's your people. 
and as we gather together even at distance, we're called by this text to ask ourselves, what is a Christian? What is a person who's been saved by the grace, by your grace? For we know that your word tells us we are delivered by your grace. But this text tells us we're also taught by that grace. We are called by that grace to live in a special way. I prayed today, Father, that if there was a person listening to this that recognized that, uh, that they had been taught a very different gospel, a gospel that saves cheaply, a gospel in which uh, presents a grace that doesn't transform and doesn't teach and doesn't call to live a different life in Christ Jesus, I pray today they would recognize that maybe they are trusting in themselves and their own works or in some other standard other than what's presented in the Bible. I pray that there's a person out there that recognized that their zeal was for what they could do, their own works, that they would recognize that is folly and will be exposed on the day of judgment as being insufficient. That it's only those who trust in Christ that will have deliverance because only Christ is sufficient. We don't stand in our righteousness. We stand in Christ's righteousness. If there was a person out there today that began to realize that, I pray they would come to throw themselves upon Christ's mercy. And Father, I pray that for those of us who are yours, we would recognize this passage is really to us. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, saved by the blood of Christ, redeemed by your grace, then we should realize that that grace also teaches and calls us to live a different kind of life. Not as the world lives, not in unrighteousness, not in godlessness, not in vain pursuits and pleasures, but to live a righteous life, to live sober-mindedly, to live godly in the present age that we might bring you glory. Father, we need your help to do that. We ask for it in Christ's name and for his everlasting glory. Amen. I want to close with our benediction today. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the last verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you.